Hello, everybody. Welcome back into the College Football 365 Podcast. My name is Don't Count Curly. I'm joined by my co-host, Anthony Azante, as we go over some transfer portal news. A big-time transfer has landed at a destination. But also, we're going to be giving our predictions for the bowl games between December 23rd and December 29th. We are recording this on the 20th, so our first predictions episode with me and Marty uh, still has both Tuesday matchups, the uh, Idaho Potato Bowl uh, and the Tropical Smoothie Cafe Frisco Bowl on Tuesday to be played, as well as the Armed Forces Bowl on Wednesday to be played. Uh, And me and Anthony will pick it up with the uh, Frisco Football Classic on Thursday. but before we get into that, like I said, there's some transfer pull news. Additionally, last week we recorded an episode, me, uh, Anthony, and Marty, regarding early signing day. We had some technical difficulties, and then I left my laptop charger somewhere, so I had no laptop over the weekend. Uh, the good news, though, is I'm going to tag that episode just onto the back of this episode, and I'm going to place a timestamp in the uh, description. Uh, on whatever you listen to this. So if you want to fast forward to our early signing day discussion, which was about an hour, uh, you can do so, uh, or you can just wait uh, till we get to that part. But instead of throwing up two episodes at this point, I'm just going to combine them into one episode. Uh, but Anthony, before we get into the, uh, the news on the transfer portal and the bowl game predictions, how are you doing? Uh, how's life as we uh, near Christmas and the new year. Life is good, man. Just uh, enjoying the holidays, uh, chilling at home right now. Glad to see you're on top of your stuff, uh, leaving laptop chargers everywhere. But uh, yeah, now, like Dylan said, we'll tack that episode at the end of this one. It's a pretty good one. Uh, we, My favorite thing about college football is recruiting. I live and breathe it at this point. So definitely listen into that one if you can at whatever time stamp it ends up being at. Yeah, it was a really fun conversation. It is a long, a little bit of a long episode at an hour. So, I mean, uh, all together, this episode probably going to be around an hour 45 at least. Um, But, hey, well, it is what it is. And we appreciate you listening to this episode. Um, But, Marty, almost called you Marty. It's been a long time since it's just been you and me. But, Anthony, uh, let's get into the transition. Let's get into transfer portal news that I've been alluding to here. And that's that Auburn quarterback, Bo Nix, uh, or Auburn transfer quarterback, Bo Nix, uh, has found his new destination. He's headed out to the Pac-12. He's going to be joining uh, new head coach Dan Lanning out there with the Oregon Ducks. Uh, This was one that really, for me, was kind of a shocker. Everybody, I think, felt that Bo Nix was – uh, potentially is going to stay in the South there, maybe in the SEC or even headed potentially to UCF to join his former head coach, Gus Malzahn. But instead, he heads out to the Pac-12 uh, to join the Oregon Ducks, which it's an interesting destination for both. I think for Bo Nix, it, it's a move that could pan out. I mean, they have a really good offensive line there and should next year, something that you can't say about Auburn. And it's also somewhere where, yes, they have tape on Bo Nix. Uh, they have three, four years of tape already. But at the same time, uh, none of those schools have, uh, I, I think, have faced him yet in his career outside of Oregon, 
who faced Bo Nix in his first career start at Auburn. Yeah, no, really interesting storyline there. I actually tweeted about that on the College Football 365 Twitter account the second it broke. I was like, wow, um, kind of ironic that his first career start was this incredible comeback win against Oregon, and now he's going to end up being the quarterback for Oregon next year. But, you know, this news definitely came out of nowhere. I, for one, thought he was going to UCF. I thought that was kind of written in stone like the second that he hit the portal just made a lot of sense with Gus Malzahn being there then you started hearing some rumblings maybe he might end up at Ole Miss Lane Kiffin's been reaching out that one would have also made a lot of sense Lane Kiffin's really good with quarterbacks but no he ends up pulling a shocker going out to Eugene um it's an interesting fit um you know they need a quarterback especially with Anthony Brown moving on they have quarterback Ty Thompson there who was a five-star in the class of 2020 I believe so I'm not sure he's a shoe in for the starting job, but you got to imagine if he's transferring in, they probably, he probably has the best odds to end up starting next year for Oregon. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out for him. It definitely has potential and I'll be tracking it. Yeah. And a lot of people were wondering what could possibly be the reason that he went out to Oregon. Besides, like I said, you look at it, Oregon has two things that Auburn really has been lacking the last few years. That's one, a nice group of skill position players, whether it's a running back or a wide receiver. And I, I mean, Auburn did have tanks, tank Bigsby and um, Hunter there, but uh, I, I would say Oregon's a little bit deeper, uh, at least uh, definitely on wide receiver, but the potential connection here. And the reason he went out there is a newly hired Oregon offensive coordinator, Kenny Dillingham actually spent the 2019 season with the Auburn Tigers as their offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach before joining Florida State in 2020. Yeah, no, one thing we're learning with the transfer portal as it goes on is that those connections matter. Yep. Um, guys are, and it makes sense, guys are more likely to transfer to teams that they have a previous relationship with the coaching exactly. staff, yep. you know, because they, they know their skill set, they know how to use them, they know in some ways the playbook and what they like to run. It's less of a learning curve. So it makes perfect sense. And you know, you, you, you kind of try to look for those connections with certain guys, especially quarterbacks, because that's such a tough position to have to come in and learn in a short period of time. These guys almost need to have those previous relationships. Absolutely. I, I agree. It's, it's something that uh, we've already seen, and it's going to be something we continue to see. Like you said, having those connections and those relationships is really key in the transfer portal especially with how coaches are changing so much in today's game, whether it is as a head coach or as an assistant. Um, I mean, we saw, I think probably at least, I I didn't, I don't have the count on top of my head, but at least 20 head coaching changes this year. Oh, the the craziest carousel we've ever seen probably. And then with all those coaching changes, you're talking about, upwards of entire coaching staffs changing uh, at places. So we're, we're talking about hundreds of coaches moving around. Um, that's hundred of coaches. Each coach, even if you say maybe has 10 close relationships with a player on a respective team, we're talking about a thousand over thousands of players being potentially impacted by these moves where those relationships could matter down the road. No, Absolutely. It uh, it definitely adds up, and it, it definitely makes sense why you're seeing a lot of kids in the transfer portal right now. Yep. 
Absolutely. Now, interestingly enough, I also think in a, in a, I don't want to say weird sense, but I'm not sure it is a huge step forward for the Oregon quarterback room. Uh, Anthony Brown was the starter for most of this season or for the entire season. Sorry. And he, let's be honest, Brown is not a above average quarterback. He's probably average at best. He has the dual threat ability, but he's not an accurate passer. And uh, when they struggled, I hate to place blame just on him, but he was a big reason for their struggles, especially against Utah uh, in those two games down. Uh, well, one, what, two weeks before the end of the season and then the one in the Pac-12 championship game. Um, I think Knicks is a better quarterback, but Knicks kind of has some of the same issues that Brown presents. So while I think it's potentially a small upgrade, I, I just don't know if it's really – puts Oregon heads and tails above everybody else in the Pac-12 entering next year. I think you have to make the argument at least that they are the favorites entering next season to win that conference. But um, if, if they have, if they come across the same offensive struggles, I would not be shocked is what I'm trying to say. No, I actually was thinking the exact same thing. Like, you know, it's definitely a slight upgrade. I think Bo Nix, you know, has a better skill set than Anthony Brown yeah. overall. Sure. But, you know, there were other guys in the portal this year that you looked at where they went to, you ended up at, where they where they ended up. Spencer Rattler ended up in South Carolina. Um, Dylan Gabriel ended up in the conference at UCLA uh, that I would rate as better overall quarterbacks than than Bo Nix. And, and maybe they did go after those guys. I don't know. But you'd have to think that Oregon, maybe with the coaching change, it's a little different. But and when those guys committed to those schools, Oregon just lost Mario Cristobal. They were looking for a head coach that might have altered those recruitments. But sure. you have to think that Oregon's still a better destination overall than a South Carolina or UCLA. And you think that they would push harder for those guys or maybe even a guy like Keaton Slovis, who I've heard, you know, maybe Notre Dame is starting to look at. That, so, was, the name that, that was the name that popped up in my head just now. I was thinking, what other guys could they have gone after? Uh, that would make sense. And the first one to come to my mind was Keaton Slovis. Yeah, no. So you would think that those three, or even that kid from, is he from Incarnate Word or whatever? I oh, yeah, his name. Uh, Ward. I yeah, his Ward. First name, but Ward, yeah. Yeah, no, he's a good quarterback as well. So, you know, there's a connection, like you said, with the offensive coordinator, so that it makes sense from that standpoint. But for Oregon's perspective, there were better names that they probably could have gone after and landed. Yeah. Uh, the first name is Cameron. It's Cameron Ward. Cameron Ward. He's pretty good, so I should know that name. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, he's considered one of the uh, top uh, transfer portal uh, entries uh, at, uh, in all of college football, uh, FBS, FCS. Uh, he is considered uh, the real deal and uh, should be a fun player to watch next year. So when we're talking about uh, guys that are playing exciting football in October next year and are putting up insane stats, expect Cameron Ward to be amongst those players. Um, yeah, I, it, it'll be interesting to see how it uh, ends up there for Knicks at Oregon. Like I said, perhaps it does benefit him and he takes a step forward because he will have a better offensive line and a better, better skill position group around him. But we'll see. And then the other thing with Oregon before we move on is it makes you wonder about Ty Thompson. I mean, if Ty Thompson couldn't beat out Anthony Brown at all this year and now Oregon went after Bo Nix, 
instead of maybe going with Thompson next year, uh, it just, it makes me, it makes me wonder about Thompson. Now I, I don't necessarily think Nick's is coming in and getting the starter job just by just being there. I'm sure there would be a competition, but uh, it's just an interesting dynamic now with Thompson, because this was like a five-star recruit, one of the top quarterbacks in the nation coming out of high school. Um, And now he's going to be at least sitting another season. Yeah. This is one of the potential downsides of the transfer portal for me is that we're in the past, you know, these schools would put all their resources into developing these young guys. If they're not quite ready yet, and it's a good, it's a plus and a minus, but if they're like feeling like, Oh, they're not quite that guy yet. You know, they, they'll just go into the portal and get a quick fix instead of like trying to like go all out and give that guy reps and try to develop that five-star quarterback. You know, it's a tough balance. And, you know, maybe Ty Thompson really just isn't ready yet. Maybe he's not the quarterback we all thought he was going to be. But, you know, I wonder if with the portal now, these schools are just more reluctant or just more willing to just go get a guy from the portal, go get an upperclassman instead of seeing, okay, is this guy actually ready or do we really need that quarterback? If you know what I mean. Absolutely. And and I I think that's really all we can really say about this move for Bo Nix in Oregon at this time. It's going to be something we have to watch going into the spring and, of course, in the next fall. But on paper, it's a solid pickup for Oregon. I'm not sure it moves the needle in terms of making them a national title contender or anything like that next year. I still think they're looking as probably the top team in the Pac-12, but it it's not putting them miles ahead of anybody. Yep. No, absolutely. I think, I think we would beat this topic yep. uh, to there. All right. Then. Well, On to the bowl games. Let's get into the bowl games. We have had some bowl games already finish uh, over the last couple of days. Uh, me and Marty, obviously uh, an episode ago, uh, went through the first uh, handful, uh, 12 bowl games. Um, we'll go quickly over the results here just uh, and give any thoughts if you have them. Uh, so bowl season started off with Middle Tennessee picking up an upset win over Toledo, 31-24. Uh, this was a game I was able to watch some highlights of. Uh, went back and watched some of it uh, on YouTube TV as well. It, it just seemed like game where I, I think Toledo was the better team, but they just uh, kept beating themselves, which at points this season was an issue for them and happened again uh, this week. Uh, did you catch any of this game? I was not able to catch uh, much of this game, but had picked Toledo to win, thought yeah. they would win fairly easily, honestly. But a lot of credit to Mid-Tennessee State. They uh, they came out, you know, they hung with them, and at the end of the day, they were able to get a, a good win to end the season. Yeah, we actually all picked uh, Toledo and the over in this game. It ended up being, um, of course, Mid-Tennessee State to cover. We picked against the spread minute. Uh, so Middle Tennessee State covered and won outright while the over hit. Um, the next game, that was the Bahama Balls. Uh, the next game on Friday evening was the Cure Ball, which was a fantastic game. Uh, and if you didn't watch it, I, I fully suggest going out on YouTube and watching it. Uh, Northern Illinois gave Coastal Carolina everything they have uh, had. Uh, but Grace McCall and that Coastal Carolina offense just had enough to pull out this victory. Um, the Huskies legitimately took it down right to the wire. 
uh, a controversial play ended the game uh, as uh, the Huskies tried to get one more playoff as time expired, but um, just a terrific, terrific game uh, here. Um, And I think right now, potentially the early favorite uh, for bowl game of the year. Oh yeah. No, this game was so fun to watch. It it felt like there was just big play after big play. Each team was just taking their shots at each other, you know, a bunch of deep shots down the field, a bunch of big runs on both sides. It was just an overall fun game. And yeah, no, like you said, Northern Illinois threw everything they had at coastal Carolina, who was considered to be the better team and ended up being that way. Uh, a controversial ending at the end um, where I personally think they should have reviewed it to see how the timing worked out, but clearly, you know, they didn't. So that's how it ended. But regardless, both teams put on a hell of a show. That was a really fun game to watch. All right, we go on to Saturday, which I think every game Saturday was outside of uh, the London tree ball was just fantastic. Uh, uh, the Independence Bowl, UAB finishes their season off with a win over number 13, BYU, 31-28. Uh, BYU was one of those teams where we all said this year they, they kind of won the Pac-12. They won three uh, three games against Pac-12 opponents, uh, had a 10-win season. They were really good this year. UAB, however, comes out in this Independence Bowl and uh, upsets the Cougars 31-28 to finish off another fantastic season for Bill Clark's program. Uh, and this is one of the games you just have to tip your hat to UAB. They always are in these games. Uh, that is still one of the most underrated stories and teams in college football year in and year out. And they prove it again here in the Independence Bowl. Perhaps BYU was still a little um, annoyed that they got – the independence ball and didn't get better. But uh, at the end of the day, you got to give your hat tip to UAB here. Yeah, no, bad day for defenders of BYU. That's for sure. Um, everyone except for Tyler Algier came out absolutely flat. Um, pretty uninspiring performance by that offense. And give credit to UAB where it's due. They came out ready to play. And um, big day for Dwayne McBride, 183 yards on the ground and a touchdown. And yeah, UAB got a good win. I've always liked Bill Clark as a coach. Yeah, a fantastic coach. And somebody will scoop him up soon. Uh, and I forgot to say, uh, in the Cure Bowl, um, both you and I picked uh, Coast Carolina and the under. Marty picked uh, Northern Illinois and the under. It was both. It was Northern Illinois and the over. Uh, and then in the Independence Bowl, we I picked BYU and you picked BYU. Both of us picked the over. Marty picked UAB and the under. It, of course, turned out to be UAB and the over. Um, Bad day for us. We're having a rough was, start. It was a rough start to bowl season for us, no doubt. Uh, the next game up. New Orleans Bowl, number 23, Louisiana versus Marshall. Uh, Marshall gave a bit of a fight here in the first half uh, and, and ended in the second half here, but Louisiana was just a much better team. They end what has been a absolutely fantastic season for them, a 13-win season for Louisiana. Uh, and, and this was without their head coach, Billy Navier, who was now, of course, with um, Florida, uh, he coached uh, Louisiana in the um, 
in their conference championship game, but did not coach the ball game. But uh, what a way for the Raging Cajuns to end the best season in program history. 13 and one. I don't care if you're what level of college football playing. I don't care who you play going 13 and one is hell of impressive. Uh, so congrats Louisiana on a tremendous, tremendous season. Yeah, no great way to end the Billy Napier era. Obviously he, you talk, every coach talks about wanting to leave a program in better shape than when they came in. And Billy Napier has done that and them and then son, because this Louisiana program is in a really good place right now. And hopefully for them, the next guy, um, I forget who they hired, but hopefully for them, he can come in and take it right where they left off and keep it in the same spot because Billy Napier did a tremendous job. He did. And guess, and, and do you want to guess what happened with our predictions on that one? Uh, I thought I picked Louisiana. Did I not? You picked, Mar- you picked Marshall. Damn. Damn. I suck right now, man. This is we hard. all picked Marshall and we all picked the under. So it was a very bad start for us. The good news is things kind of started going the right way following that. Well, these aren't exactly in order of being played, but you get the point. Um, all right. Our next game up, l- let's go to a game that I really look forward to and a, a rec, a game that helps set records. Western Kentucky versus Appalachian State in the Boca Raton Bowl. Western Kentucky gets a 59-38 win over App State. Uh, the the story of the game here, though, ba- Bailey Zappe, Sets new two new single season records in uh, FBS history with setting the single season yards mark with 5,967 passing yards and setting the single season passing touchdown mark with 62 touchdowns. Um, He's been a stud all season. He's been one of the least talked about quarterbacks in the country considering what he's doing. Um, and we and even us here at CFB three six five did not talk about him enough, even if we did at all. Um, what a tremendous! I mean, let's be honest; people aren't going to remember him twenty years down the road. But it'll be a nice little trivia question when you're at trivia night at the bar in twenty years: who holds the single season passing record in college football history? And it'll, it'll be Bailey Zappe. Um, so congrats to Zappe on a, a, the record-breaking season. But this bowl game was uh, everything I wanted out of it, high scoring, tremendous amount of offense. It was just a fun game to watch. Yeah, no, I think we all picked out state too. I don't think any of us were prepared for the the Western Western Kentucky offense and just how good I, they really were. I picked, I picked Western Kentucky. Oh, good on you then. But no um, – yeah, no, they were phenomenal to watch. I had actually not seen much of their offense this year, if at all, and this was a, a good wake-up call for me because they were damn good, and they've got some ball players on that offensive side of the ball, man. That team is good. But, uh, yeah, no, congrats to Zappi on an amazing year. Um, quietly, obviously, he doesn't have the accolades to show for it like, like a Joe Burrow did, but quietly one of the best seasons of all time by any college football player setting multiple records in the process. So, yeah, great game, high scoring. Another game where just the ball was flying downfield, a lot of big plays on both sides. And at the end of the day, that Western Kentucky offense was just too much for App State to handle. Yep, exactly. Um, and it was it was a really great, great season out of Western Kentucky as a whole. Uh, and 
Bailey Zappi kind of just overshadowed that entire team, but it was it was truly a great season out of the entire Hilltoppers program. And App State had a nice season as well. Ten and four. Chase Bryce had a great game in the Boca Raton ball. Try to did try to do all he could. Just wasn't enough. We move on to the New Mexico Bowl. Fresno State took down UTEP 31-24 here. Fresno State finishes what was a great season for them as well uh, with their 10th win of the season against uh, picking up the win against UTEP in the New Mexico Bowl. Jay Kaner finished off the season strong. Uh, of course, Hayner actually entered the transfer portal, committed to Washington, then came back to Fresno State all in between the end of the regular season and this bowl game. He went out, had a nice game, uh, and Jordan Mims, their star running back, 29 for 165, two touchdowns. Nice way for Fresno State to end the season. For UTEP, they had a solid season, went seven and six. Gave Fresno State a lot in this game, almost pulled it out, but uh, just didn't have enough. Yeah, no, this is a really good Fresno State team. And, um, yeah, UTEP really put in a good performance. Uh, but like we said, I didn't catch a whole lot of this game, but this Fresno State offense is just too much to overcome. Really good team. And with Hayner coming back next year, I think they'll be in really good shape again. Agreed. Uh, and then the final bowl game on Saturday um, – no, sorry, we, we have the Lennon Tree Bowl, Liberty versus Eastern Michigan, 56-20, Liberty win. Um, uh, there was not much to talk about in this game. Eastern Michigan kind of just got spanked uh, throughout Malik the first Willis, Malik Willis, and, and that's about it. Yeah. That's all you need to say. Malik Willis just had a day. And it was – I mean, for Malik Willis, it's kind of a game that showed you – the positives of Malik Willis and the negatives because he still was only 13 for 24, only averaged 9.6 yards per um, uh, passing attempt, but uh, he finished with almost 300 total yards of offense. He had five total touchdowns, but uh, yeah, it, it was the plus there's the positives and negatives of Malik Willis and uh, what was likely his final game with Liberty. Yeah, no, all I got to say, great performance. Liberty was just way too much for Eastern Michigan. And, yeah, no, good a good overall season for Liberty. And uh, we'll see how Malik Willis does as he transitions to the NFL. Yep. And then Utah State and Oregon State battled out Saturday night in the Jimmy Kimmel L.A. Bowl. Uh, the story of this game was uh, Utah State third-string quarterback, um, Cooper, I, I think it's Lagos. Um, he – Came in after uh, star quarterback Logan Bonner went down and went 11 for 20, 171, and two touchdowns uh, in what was a gutsy performance out of him to really propel Utah State to a 24-13 win over Oregon State. Uh, so ending your season with the win of a Power 5 team is always great. And the Aggies, on top of all that, finished with 11 wins. Um, it was a great season for Oregon State, all things considered. Uh, but Utah State was one of the best turnaround stories of the year. They won just one game last year, had to replace over 50% of their roster over the offseason. Uh, so just a great story for Utah State there. Um, and a great way uh, for the season to end with Lagos coming in with like a Hollywood-type story as the third-string quarterback to win it. Yeah, no, um, I, I know I picked Oregon State in this one. I – bought into the hype obviously we've uh 
talked a lot about the mystical beavers of Oregon state this year. And I think we all just wanted to, uh, you know, uh, speak that one into existence, but no, Utah state had a fantastic game. Great performance by Legas to, um, to come in off the bench cold and throw two touchdowns and propel Utah state to victory. It helps when you're running back Calvin Tyler jr. Puts up 120 yards and a touchdown on the ground. So yeah, big performance by Utah state to cap off an 11 win season for them. Very nice. And that will take us to our final bowl game that has uh, happened already. Um, that coming of course uh, today on Monday afternoon between Tulsa and Old Dominion. Pulling up that score right now if my computer cooperate. That was a 30-17 to 17 win for uh, Tulsa. Um, both of these teams really needed late runs at the se- during the tail end of the season here to make a bowl game. Um, Tulsa was, I think, the much better team coming in. I thought Old Dominion Perhaps could keep it close come, as, like I said, they're coming off a very strong run to the season, uh, end of the season with five straight wins. But uh, the Hurricanes were just too much for the Monarchs here. Um, but a good season for both teams, uh, all things considered. Yeah, no, um, obviously Tulsa was just a better team in this one. Game started off really exciting with Lamary and James for yeah. the Dominion, 100, and, 100 yard kickoff return to the house on the very first play of the game so that's always a great way to start off a bowl game but at the end of the day um Tulsa's defense did a great job containing um Zach Kuntz who is uh, one of Old Dominion's best players this year really solid tight end for them original transfer from Penn State but yeah um still a solid season for Old Dominion at the end of the day um they were like a two-win program before this year and uh, Ricky Ronnie's done really well to get them bowl eligible in his first season there. Yeah. And against the spread, I will say through the first nine games, we were very poor. Uh, uh, me and Marty both had four correct. Um, uh, and you were just behind us with three. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it was not our best effort in these first uh, nine games, but we still thankfully have quite a bit of bowl games to make up for. Score. Yeah, tough start. That's a that's a rough go of things. Um, so let's get into uh, the remaining games that we are picking today. Um, there are three games we've picked already that have not occurred: the Idaho Potato Bowl, the Frisco Bowl, and the Armed Forces Bowl. Um, but today we'll start with uh, the Hawaii Bowl. Uh, that game is matching up. The likes of where is it? Okay. I think you missed the games on Thursday. Yeah, it's it's apparently I was wrong on the structure. Okay, let's start. I'm gonna start from the uh, we still have three games that we picked last time out that have not been played yet. The famous Idaho potato ball between Kent State and Wyoming on Tuesday at 3:30 ESPN. Uh, the Tropical Smoothie Cafe Bowl, UTSA versus San Diego State, 7.30 ESPN on Tuesday. And the Lockheed Martin Armed Forces Bowl on Wednesday between Missouri and Army. Uh, that takes us to Thursday, December 23rd. North Texas versus Miami of Ohio in the Frisco Football Classic at 3.30 p.m. on ESPN. Anthony, Miami of Ohio enters this game as a three-point favorite. The Red Hawks, 6-6. Six and six. 
North Texas Mean Green, also six and six this season. Um, I'm not going to lie. I don't know a ton about either one of these teams this year. I, I know a little bit. Uh, so I'm going to go with my gut pick on this one, uh, Anthony, and that would give me um, Miami of Ohio to win this one and cover that three points. The over-under set at 55. Give me the over as well. I was also going to say Miami of Ohio. I think they're going to cover that three-point spread. But I will – yeah, mm, tough call at 55 on the over-under there. I, I'll take the under just to, just to combat you a little bit. I'll say that it's sure. under 55. All right. So we both take Miami of Ohio, and I'm going to take the over, but you're taking the under. Yes. All right. Just long that into our spreadsheet. All right. That takes us to – our next bowl game on Thursday, UCF versus Florida in the Union Home Mortgage Gasparilla Bowl. Um, God, these bowl games are really mouthfuls. Um, this is an interesting one. Florida has had a couple players opt out in this game. Uh, Emory Jones uh, is going to play in the bowl game, but he is in the transfer portal. Uh, Florida is a six and a half point favorite here. UCF, of course, does not have. Uh, Dylan Gabriel, as he was injured and now is transferred to UCLA. Um, yeah, how do you see this one going? This is I, – I feel like you want to bet Florida six and a half to cover because, you know, it's just general power five and especially a program like Florida against a G5 program. But uh, my gut, Anthony, is telling me to take UCF to cover that spread and – with the over-under at 55, I think I would take the under, but part of me wants to take UCF to win this game outright as well. You know what? I'm actually going to be bold and say that UCF takes this game outright. All right. I, I don't know. I feel like this Florida program is sputtering right now, six and six, but like they're just going to limp into this game. I feel like UCF's going to come in and try to make a statement. You know, it's an in-state game. You know, there's always that I'm not from Florida, but I know that like listening to people from Florida, they always talk about, you know, the pecking order in the state of Florida between Florida, Florida State, Miami, UCF, all those teams and yeah. UCF. I know they feel like they've been kind of smited over the last few years in terms of like where they stand, where, where their public perception of where they stand. I can see that I can see them coming out trying to really make a statement against a Florida team that's a little down and out right now. And I think they're going to come in and I think they're going to win this game outright. And I think it's going to be the under at the end of the day, because I think there's still a lot of defense to be played in this one. Yeah. I think this uh, Florida's defense should keep this a low scoring one, but I'm just not sure if Florida's offense will have enough to win this game. And I know UCF's defense, I mean, both defenses kind of actually were not great. But Florida State at least does have a bit. I mean, Florida, Florida does still have, a, I think, a bit of a better defense than what we saw for the majority of this year. And I think they'll play solid in this game. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm taking the under here and I'm taking UCF to win uh, as well. Um, but let's go to our next bowl game, which is on Friday, December 24th, the Hawaii Bowl. The Hawaii Bowl. Uh, Matching up Memphis versus Hawaii, 8 p.m. on ESPN. Uh, the current spread is Memphis minus eight and a half. 
And the over-under, once again, set at 55 and a half. Um, I, I do like Memphis to win this one outright. Uh, I just don't think Hawaii's offense is – Hawaii has turned the, ball, turned the ball over quite a bit this year, and their defense is – is very poor as is Memphis's, but I, I just have a little bit of bigger belief in Memphis to not turn the ball over as much and to um, take advantage of those extra opportunities that they do receive in the game. So give me Memphis, you know, give me Hawaii to cover this, but give me Memphis to win and give me the over at 55 and a half. Yeah. Sim- uh, similar, but slightly different. I'm going to say Memphis wins. I'm going to say they cover the spread. And I'm going to say that the, I'm going to say the over as well. Cause like you said, I don't think either of these teams have a, a solid defense to fall back on. So I feel like this could be a very high scoring game. Uh, I uh, 100% agree. I, I think, I think I would be willing to go upwards of uh, 62 points on this one uh, uh, in reality. Um, that takes us to Saturday, December 25th. Of course, Christmas Day, we got the Camellia Bowl, Georgia State versus Ball State. The current odds are Georgia State minus five and a half over under set at 50 and a, 50 and a half. Yes. Uh, in this game, this is, this, is a, this is a good matchup, a, a, sneak, a sneaky good game, I think. Two, two solid teams here. Um, neither one great at one thing, but just solid overall. Uh, I will take the over, I believe, at 15 and a half, just because both defenses are a bit suspect and the offenses have potential to break out. Um, but give me, give me Georgia State to cover, and I'll take the over as well. Um, well before you give, and, and the reason I'm going a lot of overs here is as we already seen in bowl season. Um, if I'm correct, out of the nine games, eight out of the nine have gone over so far. Yeah, it's a pretty safe bet on most of these that it's going to be over. I feel like there's no defense being played. No, exactly. Um, not sure who to pick in this one. Um, no, give me. I'll go with you. Give me Georgia State and and give me the over. I'll say they cover as well. Next up on our list, we go to Monday, December 27th. We got the Quick Lane Bowl, Western Michigan versus Nevada, 11 a.m. on ESPN. Uh, This is a game where I'm going to say I like Nevada to cover the seven-point spread that is currently set. And the over-under of 56, I do like the over. These are two high-scoring offenses. I have... Sorry, is the spread consensus is Nevada minus six and a half. ESPN's pick center for some reason had it flipped. Um, but I like Nevada at minus six and a half, but I also like the over on this one. 56, I think, is too little for two teams that can swell, score well into the 30s and 40s if given the opportunity to do so. Um, Nevada has scored uh, 40 plus points in three of their last five games, including. 52-10 win in their last game against Colorado State. Western Michigan has put up 30-plus points in four of their last five. Give me the over in this one, but give me Nevada to win this one up to a touchdown. 
So covering the yeah. six and a half. Yeah, no, I'm going to actually say it's a close game at the end. So I'm going to say that Western Michigan uh, covers, but Nevada wins outright. And I think these are going to be, it's definitely going to take the over in this one. But I think Carson Strong at the end of the day is just going to be too much. Um, and he's just too good. And Nevada is going to win this game. Very high scoring. All right, that takes us to our last two days here of predictions before we get into our next episode. Uh, December 28th, 12 p.m., we got the Birmingham Bowl matching up number 20 Houston versus Auburn. Auburn currently a two-and-a-half-point favorite here. This is an interesting one. Two really good defenses here, two. One really good offense in Houston, one okay offense in Auburn, but it's an Auburn offense that won't have Bo Nix. Auburn's lost four of the last five. Houston, on the other hand, has won four of the last five. The only loss to being Cincinnati. Give me Houston to cover that spread. Give me Houston to win this one outright. And give me the under here at 51 and a half. Exactly what I was about to say. <laughs> so just, just pencil me in for the exact same thing. I like Houston in this one. I don't know. I feel like, again, it's just a case of a, a G5 team that, I think it's going to come out and make a statement and you have a power five team that is a little down right now. And I, I think that Houston has had a fantastic year and I think that they're going to parlay this into a win and a 12 win season. So yeah, give me Houston. Also, you missed the military bowl, by the way, Boston college versus East Carolina. Oh, you're right. I did miss the military bowl, Boston college versus East Carolina, 27, 2 30 PM. Uh, that is currently Boston college minus three. Uh, give me Boston College to cover that three-point spread. The over/under is currently set at fifty-one and a half. Give me the under. Right, slightly different. I'll take Boston College to win and cover the spread, but I'll take the over in this one. All right, easy enough. Back to December twenty-eighth. This uh, Serve Pro first responder. Wow, what a mouthful! The Serve Pro first responder bowl. Only Air for Force. you, buddy. Only for you. Air Force versus. Louisville, Louisville currently a one and a half point favorite, and the over under set of 55 and a half. They really like this 55 and a half. Let me tell you, um, God, this is a tough one, Anthony. I, I like Air Force quite a bit. Um, Louisville, on the other hand, has had solid games, but they've also looked poor in others especially against good defenses. I mean, 21 points against Kentucky, 24 against Clemson, 13 against NC State. I think I have to go with Air Force here. Air Force has a very good defense. They have an offense that can score with Louisville if Louisville does begin to put up points. Um, additionally, Air Force is going to be able to likely dominate the time of possession here, running that triple option offense. And I think that plays to their advantage. So give me... Air Force to win outright, and I'll take. You know, I'll take. I'll take the. I'll take the over. Air and that may be sound crazy, but Air Force has put up forty plus points in each of the last two games, thirty five plus points in each of the last three games. Um, Louisville's defense isn't that good, and Louisville's defense is suspect against the run. I mean, they've given up 156 yards per game this year on the ground, so Air Force should be able to move the ball quite a bit in this game. That's some solid research right there, man. I'm impressed. 
But that being said, I'm going to completely contradict everything you just said. So <laughs> I'm going to go with Louisville to win and, and cover in this one. I don't know why. It's just a gut feeling, honestly. And I'm going to take the under. Anytime you're playing a triple option offense, I feel like it's a safer bet just to go with the under. But I completely understand why you went with the over because those are some solid numbers. So if you're actually betting this game, go with what Dylan just said because you probably have a better chance of hitting. Um, if you just like betting on a whim, then sure, listen to what I just said. Yeah, it's interesting because, like you said, going to, when you look at a triple option game, you usually bet the under because usually it means less time of possession for the other team. One team will dominate time of possession, and triple option offenses usually don't put up a ton of points. But Air Force is an offense that can score quickly, and their defense gets them a lot of extra possessions, which has, so far this season has – turn it to points. So I'm kind of going in a bold direction here saying with the over, but it's certainly possible. Um, if anything, I would say bet Air Force to win outright. Uh, but hey, if you want to bet the over under and you want to go the over, don't blame me if it loses. If I was giving betting advice for this game, I would bet don't bet this. I would say don't bet this game yeah. because it's a little bit of a coin flip. So uh, yeah. pick a different game that is a little bit more of a lock. I think that's a, a great piece of advice there, Anthony. Of course, we always have to give a disclaimer. These picks are not betting advice. They're for entertainment purposes only. Oh, I would hope based off our record currently that people would realize that if they're listening, not to actually take our advice. In fact, you'll make more money if you do the opposite of what we say as a consensus. So probably, I mean, I've been, I have been on a, uh, a cold streak recently in betting though at the beginning of the season, I mean, between college and the NFL, I made, uh, I, I think I doubled my, uh, my, uh, what I put in at the beginning of the season. So, uh, and I put in, I had about 150 at the beginning of the season recently college grad can't can't put in hundreds of dollars like some people but uh, i think i made about i think i doubled my profits this year which i i only do small bets so i'm happy with that um there you go very nice yes um it, it's beer money uh that takes us to the liberty bowl mississippi state versus texas tech 6 45 p.m uh this is a fun one just because you got the Mike Leach dynamic. Mike Leach going up against his former program in Texas Tech here. Um, Over-under set of 59.5. Mississippi State minus 9 currently. I, I like Mississippi State to win this game. Um, but I'm, Texas Tech has played a lot of teams really close this year. This is a really tough one against the spread. Um I do like the over because I think Mississippi State is likely to get upwards of 35 to 40 points in this game. So if Texas Tech can get into that 20 range, I think it goes over. But this is a tough one with that nine-point spread. Yeah, no, I looked at this one and I was like, Ooh, I don't know really where to go with this one. I don't really know what Texas Tech is right now. I think that's my problem. Yeah. But I do know that both of these offenses are air raid, high octane offenses. And I do think the spread or the over under, it'll go over. I just think this, I think this is one of those games where defense is going to be optional and you're just going to have these teams slinging it down the field. Um, and it's going to be a fun one to watch if you're a big fan of deep shots down the field. But I, I think uh, I'll take Mississippi state to win. Um, 
And, you know, at the end of the day, I'll take them to cover as well. I'll say they win by 10 to 14 points. All right. I am also going to take Mississippi State here uh, to win. And I will, of course, take the over as well as I I feel like I need to do anytime Mississippi State or Texas Tech play, even though that hasn't exactly been the case for Texas Tech this year. Um, but I always feel the need to take the over with either of these teams. And now they're facing each other. So I, I have to, right? Yeah, no, it's just, it's just the rules of, I feel like it's just one of those unwritten rules. You just got to take the over with those two. All right, that takes us to the San Diego County Credit Union Holiday Bowl on the 28th at 8 p.m. on Fox UCLA versus NC State. A, a rare bowl game on Fox, I should say. Um, in this game, like I said, NC State versus UCLA. Current spread is NC State minus one over under set at 59 and a half. Give, give me NC State to win this game outright. I like them a lot here. I think their defense will be able to stop what has been at times an inconsistent UCLA offense. Though UCLA has been really, really good offensively at the end of the season, scoring 40 plus points in each of the last three games, including 62 points against USC. Uh, but I really like this NC State team on both sides of the ball. Only allowed 19.7 points per game this year. Offense is averaging 33 points per game. Uh, I like NC State to win this one. But do give me the over here at 59.5. I think this is going to be a, enough of a high-score matchup to go over. But I think NC State will get at least one or two stop, enough stops, at least, I should say, too. Uh, win this one outright. I think this is going to be a really good game. I actually really like this matchup. Devin Leary versus Dorian Thompson Robinson is a really fun quarterback matchup, an underrated quarterback matchup, in my opinion. Um, but you know what? My girlfriend's sister's fiance uh, went to NC State. So I'm going to go with NC State in this game to win outright. And I'm going to take the under only because I don't know. I, I just feel like, I don't know, just a, just a hunch. It's just going to be the under. Okay, can you explain that relation again? My girlfriend's sister's fiance. That reminds me of those uh, those message board posts where people are like, uh, I just heard f- from my neighbor's uh, best friend's sister's uh, cousin that so-and-so is transferring to blah, blah, blah. Uh, and it just reminds me of those, those message boards posts you come across now and then. Yeah, no, I had to think about it before I said it because I was like, I can't like accidentally miss a word. It's just going to be really, really complicated at that point. So I was like, no, nah, I got to make sure I say every single word sequentially or else it's going to come out wrong. All right. That takes us to the Gatorade Bowl. Oh, sorry, not Gatorade Bowl, the Guaranteed Rate Bowl. Um, I'm sure you can see how those two, if you read it fast enough, could kind of look like each other. Again, um, only, only you, buddy. Again, <laughs> um, West Virginia versus Minnesota. Give me the under right away, even at 45. And in terms of the Minnesota minus four and a half in this game, oh, that, that is a tough one, but give me, give me West Virginia to cover. I think this is a low scoring matchup. I, I, like, I think this is like a 23, 20 type game. So just goes under and West Virginia just covers. Living in West Virginia right now, how could I not take the Mountaineers in this one? It would it would almost be a cardinal sin on my part. 
So, of course, I'm going to take the Mountaineers to win this game outright against Minnesota. And 45, man. Um, I know these aren't high-scoring teams, but, damn, that's a low over under, man. Um, it is. That's a tough one. Yeah, screw it. I'll take the over. All right. I'll, I'll say that, you know, both muster up enough offense to get to 45 each. Or not like forty five total. So I'll say I'll say the forty five. Forty five is a lot. Is not a lot. But, you know I'm changing my mind. I'm going to the over too. Uh, so we both took West Virginia and the over. And you had UCLA and the over. I had NC State. NC did, State. You, you NC did State. The, the girlfriend, sister's fiance, bro. Come on. <laughs> uh, I was thinking. I was thinking about the connection before I remember heard where she was going to school. Um, but uh, all right, so we both take West Virginia and the over. We move into Saturday, sorry, Wednesday, December 29th. Here, our final day of predictions for this episode. We start off with the Wasabi Fenway Bowl between SMU and Virginia. What a great name for a bowl game, by the way. That's it's awesome. a fantastic, fantastic name. Virginia, a two and a half point favorite here. Over under set at 71 and a half. I don't care what the over under is, give me the over even at 71 and a half. I think we're going to see. A lot of points. I would not be shocked if we see upwards of 80 points in this game at least. Um, and give me SMU to win outright. Yeah, no. Uh, the issue is not the – that's the first one. That's a, I've never seen a number that big. It's a huge over-under. Like, that's like – we've been talking about 55, 50, maybe 59 and a half. Now we're just hitting 71 and a half. That's a huge jump from every other game. Um but no, I uh, love this matchup. Again, a really underrated quarterback matchup between Brennan Armstrong and Tanner Mordecai. Both have put up um, at least if almost 4,000 yards of offense as an average between the two. Um, I'll take Virginia in this one just to contradict you a little bit. I'll take Virginia and, and, the, and the points, I guess. So give me, give me Virginia, even though I think SMU could very easily win this game and it's going to be a fun one. I don't think you go wrong betting either way in this game in terms of the spread. Um, both teams are excited. This is one of the really actually one of the better quarterback matchups of the entire bowl season between Tanner Mordecai and Brennan Armstrong. Uh, so I, I think it's going to be a great game. And you can't go wrong either way here. Like I said, that 100%. takes, that takes us to the new era pinch dry bowl. So we go from Fenway stadium, Fenway park, sorry, Fenway park um, to uh, Yankee stadium. Red Sox, the Yankees here. Maryland versus Virginia Tech here. Uh, this is, I got to be honest, one of my least, uh, the bowl games I'm least excited for this season. Uh, just doesn't really appeal to me. Neither team is great uh, offensively. Both, I mean, Virginia Tech has a solid defense, but it doesn't excite me at all here. Um, currently, the spread is Maryland three. Minus three and a half over under set at 55. And looking at it, I, I think I will have to take the under. Um, I think Maryland does win this game, and I think they do cover three and a half points. I just I don't see Virginia Tech having enough offense to win this game. Um, Braxton Burmeister just entered the transfer portal. I'm not even sure who their starting quarterback would be at this point. Uh, so give me Maryland to cover that three and a half point spread. And at 55, give me the over. You know the account on Twitter 
where it's uh, like the no context college football account and like one of those random games will just like post like a stat line where it's like punt 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 fumble punt like one of those things yeah it's like i feel like this could be one of those games i don't know yeah. this is like you said this just feels like a very unexciting game um i do think maryland's gonna win it uh maybe it's just because it's up north too it might it could even snow who knows it could be one of those like like awkward games to watch but i think maryland is gonna win and cover and i'm gonna take the under in this one as well i just i just don't I just don't feel like it's going to be like a, a, a thrilling game. Sure, sure. And I, I respect uh, that uh, myself. Um, that takes us to uh, the Cheez It Bowl uh, in Orlando between number 19 Clemson and Iowa State, which is actually at the beginning of the season would have been a fantastic matchup that you could be saying, oh, is this a New Year's Six matchup? Is this a Playoff matchup, I, I never considered Iowa State a true playoff contender, but many thought they could potentially win the, uh, the Big 12 this year. They obviously did not go in 7-5, but it still gives us an interesting uh, cheese ball matchup here uh, on the 29th at 5.45 p.m. on ESPN. Um, Clemson a one-point favorite here over under a 44. I know Brees Hall announced he was entering the draft. Does he sit out this game? He is sitting out this game, yes. All right, then give me Clemson to cover that one point spread. I don't, and I at the over under of 44, give me the uh, under as well. I don't think there's going to be a ton of points scored in this game, uh, but give me Clemson to um, cover that one point. Yeah, no, I completely agree with what you just said, actually, pretty much word for word. I, I take Clemson to, uh, to win, especially with Brees Hall being out. I think that really hurts Iowa State's chances in this one. And um, I'll, I'll take the under because I agree. This is a Clemson offense. It's just been so underwhelming this year. I looked at DJ Uyangalele's stats, and it's just – he only threw nine touchdowns to nine interceptions. That's yikes. And, yeah, um, I, I think that this is going to be a, a very low-scoring game, kind of like the Maryland-Virginia Tech game. Crazy to think because, like you said, at the beginning of the year, we – thought this could be a playoff matchup it's not the cotton bowl it's the cheese it bowl so uh i'm gonna yeah i'll take clemson to cover and and win even though it's gonna be a low scoring game and another uh could have been playoff matchup uh, at the beginning of the season number 14 oregon versus number 16 oklahoma in the uh, valero alamo bowl at 9 15 on the 29th this, uh, like I said, at the beginning of the season, if if uh, Iowa State wasn't going to win the Big 12, everybody thought it was going to be Oklahoma. Uh, and that wasn't even considering the possibility that, A, Spencer Rattler wouldn't finish the season as a starting quarterback or even with the Sooners, and, B, that Lincoln Riley would be at USC by the end of the season. Uh, and then Oregon, on the other hand, I don't think anybody thought that Mario Cristobal would jump ship from Oregon to Miami by the end of the season. While the Ducks also blew it down the stretch, losing twice, badly to Utah. It What a... If this game does not encapsulate what craziness has been over the last couple of weeks, I don't know what is. Yeah, we, we need to change the name of this one to the Valero. My coach left me at the altar bowl because each... each uh, each program has gone through the absolute ringer over the last uh, of the last few weeks in terms of how their coaches left 
And basically their recruiting class is kind of falling apart. Oklahoma's rebounded a little better in that category, but it's been a rough month for each of these programs. And this could be an interesting matchup that encapsulates that. I'm sure that's going to be the headlines going into it. Uh, I'm sure it will be too. Uh, and I mean, it's a, it's an interesting matchup. Uh, I think, or uh, so currently Oklahoma is a four and a half point favorite over under set 61. Despite all the changes that have happened for both programs, I do like Oklahoma to cover that spread because I look at Oregon and Oregon's offense over the last couple, over those two of those last three weeks, primarily against Utah, of course, wasn't really clicking at a high level. And even you look at the last five weeks, it wasn't clicking at a high level. And that was with Joe Moorhead. Now Joe Moorhead is at Akron. I know he was originally expecting to coach this game. But that was when Cristobal was still there. I'm not sure if he's still planning on coaching that game now that Cristobal is gone. If he is, that may change how I feel. But I, I still feel like Oklahoma here has the higher upside offensively based off what we've seen recently. And, I mean, I think their defense – this defensive matchup is kind of a toss-up. But at the end of the day, I go back to I'm going to go – if, I, if I'm stuck between who to go with, I look at who has the better quarterback, who has the better coach. Let's say coach is a toss-up right now because it's both interims. But when it comes down to quarterback, it's Anthony Brown versus Caleb Williams, and I'm going to take Caleb Williams every day of the week. Yeah, no, I'm going to take Oklahoma to, to win and cover in this one pretty easily, honestly. After that Utah game, this Oregon team really left a sour taste in my mouth. Um, I don't know. I, it's just – that offense looked really, really bad. And I just don't trust that team to put up a big performance when they need it. So give me Oklahoma. And I'm actually going to take the under in this one overall. Yeah, I'm going to take the under as well because I don't see Oklahoma putting up like 40, 50 points. I guess 40 is a potent, is a possibility. But, I mean, I, I just don't see that happening. I think this could be a 38-20 type game. It, I think it just it just barely hits the under, but I, I think it goes under. Yeah, if anything, I think Oklahoma's gonna have to put up a big day. I just I don't see Oregon going over like 25 points. Yeah. So yeah. So I, I mean at that point, what was it, 61? If Oregon puts up 25 points, Oklahoma's gonna have to put up 36. So at that point, you're looking at well would be like a 38-25 matchup. I mean, 38-25 score likely. I, I just don't see that happening. Because I, yeah, I don't see Oklahoma getting 240, and I don't see Oregon probably getting over 24. Yeah, no, exactly. That's my rationale as well. All right, well, that's all the bowl games up until December 31st, which means the next time we record, uh, we will re- – We'll record and discuss uh, all the New Year's Six games uh, we, and others, including the Gator Bowl, the Tiger Sun Bowl, Arizona Bowl, Outback Bowl, uh, and so on and so forth. And then uh, we, we'll also do the Texas Bowl on the fourth, and we'll give our predictions for uh, the playoffs and the national championship game on the 10th. Yeah, man. Sounds good. I think we've uh, talked enough on this episode. That's for sure. All right. Well, uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to uh, this part of the episode as we uh, 
gave our predictions, talked a little bit about Bo Nix going to Oregon as well. Don't forget, right after I'm done talking here, I'm going to have a jump right into what would have been our last episode on early national signing day. I'm going to leave the intro in. Uh, so it's going to sound like a whole new episode. I'm going to leave it as it was, and I'm just going to attach it to the end. So if you feel like listening to that, go ahead. We talk about uh, Travis Hunter committed to Jackson State. We talk about uh, some of our favorite classes, some classes that disappointed us, um, and the, just the craziness that was early National Sign Day 2021. Uh, anything that stuck out to you in particular there that uh, listeners should listen to, listen for, Anthony? In the signing day episode? Yeah. Uh, I mean, definitely our conversation about Travis Hunter. I mean, that was definitely the stunner of signing day and yep. the biggest stunner in recruiting history. Let's just be, let's just call it how it is. But um, no, all in all, it's just a good episode. We kind of go through classes we like, classes we don't like, and just a good wrap up for what was a very interesting signing day. That's for sure. All right. Well, I think that uh, we'll just head right into the episode. So thank you for listening to this portion, guys. Uh, and if you're going to listen to the next portion, thank you. And if not, well, thank you for listening to this portion. And uh, have a good weekend. And, yeah, let's get right into that next portion. Greetings, everyone. Welcome into the College Football 365 podcast, a signing day special here. Though we're, we are recording this a day after early National Signing Day uh, took place on Wednesday. Uh, guys, it was uneventful early National Sign Day on Wednesday f- across the country. Uh, we had the biggest surprise in the history of college football recruiting uh, happen. We saw some interesting flips occur with potential backstories that are interesting and so on and so forth. Uh, it, it was quite the day uh, for, for college football on Wednesday. Anthony, you're on for the first time in a while. Let's get your thoughts here first. Yeah, no, I was trying to follow it as much as I possibly could. It it was something, that's for sure. I mean, just the news of Travis Hunter alone um, was absolutely, like, shocking. Like, I don't even know the right word. It, it just sent, like, shockwaves through the college football landscape. Um, nobody expected him to flip to Jackson State. Um, obviously an FCS school, um, it, it, the number one player in the country has never, ever even considered that as an option. So it, it's, it's something monumental and it, it's going to be very interesting to track in the future. That's for sure. Mark? Yeah, it was something, um, you know, we'll get into all of this more, obviously as the show goes on, but just, it was definitely probably the biggest shocker, not just in, in signing day history, but like you said, Dylan, maybe in the history of college football recruiting to see this occur. And, you know, I remember, I think it was about 11 a.m. or so on signing day, and Steve Wiltfong at 247 Sports said that, you know, he was hearing some legitimate buzz that this could happen, and sure enough, it happened. And, you know, credit credit to Coach Primetime and everyone else on his staff at Jackson State for pulling this off. All right, yeah, let's get right into that story. We can talk about the remainder of recruiting, of early sign day and all the recruiting classes across the country, but let's get into this big this big story. I mean, it, it is truly something we have never seen in college football. I mean, not by a long shot. Uh, and 
it's something we probably will never see again. And and that is like you guys talked about briefly, uh, the number one player in the country consensus, almost a consensus number one player in the country. I know rivals has him a number one uh, on three has him a number one. I'm not sure 24 seven sports has him. I think he may they be, do. A, they do. They have him one as well. I wasn't sure if they had him or Walter Nolan at one. ESPN um, has the two. Two. All right. So almost a consensus number one player in the country. Committed to Florida State for almost two years. He, he was the gem, the, the source of all the Florida State pride over the last couple of months with the season they had. It was, hey, we're going through a tough season, but look, we have Travis Hunter coming in. This guy has a chance to be a true game changer at the college level starting next year. Perhaps with Travis Hunter coming in, we can finally change the culture and get this program back on track in Tallahassee. That, that's now what happened, obviously. Uh, and, and as Smarty alluded to it, it was about around uh, 1130, 12 o'clock yesterday uh, on Wednesday and when the buzz started coming in that Travis Hunter was seriously looking at not Georgia to go to because that was where the rumors were originally for him to flip to, but instead of joining Deion Sanders down at Jackson State. And there's been four stars who have gone to FCS programs in the past. I mean, I remember a quarterback a couple classes ago who had offers from a bunch of schools, including Alabama. He chose Princeton to go to. I'm not sure if he remained a four-star in at the, in the very end, but at the time of his commitment, he was a four-star. But there's been a handful of players who've gone to FCS, but we never thought we would see a five-star player, let alone the number one player in the country, go to an FCS school in our lives. I mean, I remember not too long ago when we were all just amazed when Houston landed at Oliver. And... And Oliver at the time was a five-star committed to a G5 program. That was unheard of at the time. And now that we got Travis Hunter, the number one crew in the nation, going to uh, an FCS program, an HBCU, which is awesome as well. I mean, just it is still somewhat mind-blowing that this is an actual thing happening in college football. Uh, he's not going to Alabama. He's not going to Georgia, not going to Florida State. Not Ohio State, not any of the 130 FBS teams. He chose to go to uh, FCS and uh, really, like people have said, create his own legacy now. We'll see how it goes. But uh, what's your guys' overall thoughts on Hunter going to Jackson State to join Dion? Well, I mean, it's it's interesting for sure. I mean, it's it, it is. It's mind-blowing. I mean, for us, I, I personally – I'm skeptical of it because, you know, it's like you had the opportunity to go to any school in the country. This kid had every school after him, Bama, Georgia. He was committed to Florida state forever. It was interesting because he recruited a lot for Florida state guys like Sam McCall and AJ Duffy. They, a, lot, a big reason why they went to Florida state is because Travis Hunter was recruiting them the entire time. They wanted to play with the kid who 24 seven sports is dubbed as a, as a generational talent. And, like Marty said, a ton of credit to Deion Sanders and that entire Jackson State staff for flipping him. And yeah, he's going to create his own legacy and it's going to be very interesting to watch. And obviously there's all the rumors with the contract with Barstool, the NIL money. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. We might not ever really know. But it's 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 very 
it's very crazy, very interesting. And if, you know, hey, good for him. We'll, we'll see how it works out. And um, one more thing I wanted to add, but it kind of slipped my mind. So maybe I'll come back to it later. <laughs> Marty? Yeah, no, it's like you said, it's definitely an interesting, interesting decision. Um, I mean, if he goes to Jackson State and plays to the to the top visibility that he has, it's not going to prevent him from being a first round pick in the NFL draft or anything like that. But, you know, I, I just think, you know, you, you look at the situation and if you're a cornerback who is that highly rated and you have the opportunity to go play for Deion Sanders, it, I can understand where the allure is there. I really can. You know, you look at the guy who might be the best cornerback in the history of football and you have the opportunity for that guy to be head coach. I, I just, I can totally get why you'd want to play for him. The one thing you mentioned, Anthony, that I was thinking too, it's kind of crazy with all this is he, he was a major peer recruiter for this Florida State class. And from my understanding, from what I've read, from what I've heard other people talking about the situation, really right up to signing day, he continued to be a big time peer recruiter for the Seminoles. So, you know, that was interesting. And it really makes you wonder when, when did this decision come on his end? Was it really a last second decision, which it very well may have been because it seems like right up till signing day, he was still recruiting for Florida state. Yeah. I remembered real quick what I wanted to say at the end. Um, I think with the transfer portal now, I think this allows decisions like this to happen because obviously, like you said, like having Deion Sanders as your coach is a huge draw. And I would totally understand why he would be interested in that. But as a, you can make these decisions now because if he's not happy there or if, if it's not working out or he wants to make the jump up to the Power 5 level at some point in his career, he can absolutely do that because the transfer portal now allows him to and he'd be a big name in there. So it really is no harm, no foul. If it doesn't work out, he could always just jump up a level if that's what he so chooses, if he wants to prove himself per se. But he could absolutely just go to the NFL off of there and, and be perfectly fine. So that's all I want to add. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, great point there. I guess where I stand on this is, one, it's – I mean, first we have to give a round of applause to Dion for pulling this off. NIL deal or no NIL deal to get even a four-star – a five-star, let alone the number one player in the country, to come to your school as an FCS program is it is potentially the great, I would say, the greatest recruiting win in the history of college football. I mean, I, I honestly don't think we'll ever see anything like this again. I think we will see potentially a trend start in which there is a handful of players every year that choose to go down to the FC le FCS level potentially HBCUs, especially if Dion remains at Jackson state, I think that is, that shows great potential um, of continuing. Uh, I, I, I do say that I not say, I do wonder to a degree is, is this, is the trend going to be able to continue if Dion leaves Jackson state sooner than later? Cause I, I, I feel, and while I do think HBCUs, have an incredible amount of tradition, have an incredible amount to sell and deserve to bring in more high level talent. I, I, I just, I don't know if 
Jackson State is getting these guys necessarily because they're an HBCU, or is it because Dion is just that elite of a recruiter? I'm not trying to take anything away from Jackson State or HBCUs. Uh, I, I guess where I'm going with this is just I, I wonder how much of this was Hunter influenced by the idea of playing under Dion and being recruited by Dion versus actually setting a career path in at an HBCU. And I think what's going to be the biggest eventual storyline here is if during Hunter's career at Jackson state, if Dion Sanders chooses to leave Jackson state, does Hunter leave with Dion or will Hunter stay at Jackson state and continue to pave that way? I think it would be absolutely huge, and I'd love it if Dion leaves, if Hunter does stay at Jackson State and continues to pave that way. I think that would be a huge message to send to players out there to, that are saying, like, hey, you don't have to go to Alabama, Georgia, so on and so forth to get to the NFL to do this or that. You can come to an HBCU, help begin a new path, a new legacy here, instead of going the directions we've seen for the last, you know, a hundred years. Um, and, and it's not like HBCUs haven't, or FCS programs in general, haven't developed talent over the years. I mean, you look at some of the NFL greats, they, a lot of them have come from HBCUs, especially in the seventies, eighties and nineties. There's no reason that can't happen again today. And perhaps Hunter is just the beginning of that trend, but I think it's going to be important to wait and see if, Hunter stays at Jackson State throughout his career, and especially if somebody like Dion leaves. Uh, but I mean, it, it'll be interesting. Uh, there's, I mean, um, was it oh God, who just got hired by Grambling? Was that Hugh Jackson? I think it was right. Hugh Jackson's at Grambling, and then Eddie George is at. Um, yeah, it was Hugh Jackson at Grambling? Is he at Tennessee State? I think that's yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, those are two guys who can also, I think, probably recruit at a pretty high level uh, for FCS relative and th- and could potentially, you know, get into some of these. Uh, I don't think it's always going to be five-star players coming to these FCS programs uh, or HBCUs like Jackson State, but can they start getting into the recruitment of top, 500 players i think absolutely sure i think absolutely i think so i think you could talk about some top 250 players so on and so forth so that that's just what i'll be interested in is to see how this continues with Dion at jackson state but also post Dion sanders at jackson state i'll just say this i truly believe there's only one Dion sanders um i think this is directly tied to what he is doing for jackson state and his name, his ability to sell a program, his ability to recruit. I think he is an, he's an ace recruiter, and he's proving that right now. And some Power 5 program is going to notice that. We were talking about this briefly before we started recording, but I really, truly, in my heart, think that if you gave Deion Sanders an elite staff at the Power 5 level, he could win championships. Like, I, I, you just tell him, you go recruit, you go sell the program, we'll put an elite coordinator staff around you, we'll put elite position coaches around you, you just go sell this program, he could absolutely win. 
So I, while I do think HBCUs will continue to pull kids like like kids that are high ranking in the future, I, I really I think that most of this is because of Dion. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of it's because of Dion. I just agree with you, like you said, Anthony. We discussed this off air. The thing, if you put Dion in a Power Five school with elite recruiters around him, he'd win a national championship. Um, you know, the comparison I made before he came on the air is I think there could definitely be some parallels to be drawn between Deion Sanders and Dabo Sweeney. And if you look at pre this season, basically with Clemson, um, when Dabo had Brent Venables as defense coordinator and the offense coordinator spot being split up between Jeff Scott and Tony Elliott, if you gave Dion that staff at a school like Clemson, who's all in on football, I think Dion could certainly win a national championship. Yeah, I, I, I do agree that I think Dion has unreal potential. Um, and if he gets to a program that could invest the money he needs to get an elite staff around him, that is definitely possible. I, I don't think – I think he would recruit very well. I don't – like I, I feel like because of what he did with Hunter, expectations when he goes to another program. Uh, if he ever does go to – I'm assuming he will at one point. But let's – perhaps – Jackson State his whole life, um, but uh, once if Dion gets to the power five level, gets to the program, I think there's going to be some unrealistic expectations of just how strong recruiters. And don't get me wrong, the guy is obviously one of the best recruiters in all college football. Um, but I mean, I still think there'll be a little unrealistic expectations. Uh, but potential wise, Dion Sanders has the potential to build a national championship team somewhere. Uh, but I think it would also take, get into a place that's willing to put in the money and Florida state people are like, that's the job he wants. But I I've heard that the administration down there doesn't like him. So I don't know how that will pay, play out. Plus Florida state hasn't really shown the, the, I wouldn't say ability, but the want to invest a, a ton of money right now. Um, we've recently, we've seen Miami be willing to do so recently after years of not wanting to, it seems like Oregon may finally be wanted to. Uh, so, uh, it, it's going to take a program though, to want to spend that type of money. All right. We, we talked about Dion and the impact he had on this and obviously his potential. Let's flip to the other coach here that was mainly involved. That being Mike Norvell down at Florida state. Oh boy, uh, Florida State fans are, uh, let's say, not happy about this one. Understandably so. Uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if it's Deion Sanders or whoever it is at Jackson State. On paper, all people are going to see is that Mike Norvell and Florida State lost the number one player in the country to a FCS program. Now that's not entirely fair because I mean Kirby Smart. And Georgia was recruiting uh, Travis Hunter. And so was pretty much every other major program in the country. And they all failed to get Hunter, and he ended up at Jackson State. That being said, at the end of the day, Norvell had Hunter committed to the program for nearly two years. And the last minute, he, he vanished from Florida State's grasps. Um, how does this impact Mike Norvell going forward, guys? 
I mean, it's a tough loss for Mike Norvell. I mean, there is there is no other way to spin it. You had that guy committed for two years. He was the biggest peer recruiter for your program, an influential force on the trail, really, in peer recruiting. And and just like that, in the blink of an eye, he's gone and to an FCS program, no less. So, yeah, I don't like. I understand why Florida State fans are upset. I really do. In a way, I kind of feel bad for them because they've, they've they've gone through five years of absolute hell, and it looks like it's not ending anytime soon. But you know, they're put they're putting their blame in the wrong place. Honestly, I I don't know if really there's anything Mike Norvell could have done. Um, especially if the rumors about the NIL and Barstool are in fact true. There's been reports today that it's false, so who knows? But if that's true, Florida State's kind of restricted based on what they could do based off of Florida's NIL laws. So in a way, it might not re- there might not have been anything that Mike Norvell or anybody at Florida State could have done to stop it. And you know that that's a tough break, but you know Florida State fans just gotta swallow their pride and just get over it really yeah it's definitely a tough look and a tough break for Norville and the Seminoles um I, I saw some people talk about it and say that this is the kind of recruiting loss that gets people fired and that might not be totally off base but I, I still think Norvell's got a good thing going in Tallahassee I mean he just got a contract extension he's not going to go anywhere um and I just if you're a Florida State fan, my thing is, look at this. Had he flipped to Georgia, Alabama, whatever it may have been, you're looking at this completely differently than you are now, which I completely understand. Mm-hmm. But don't put the emphasis on him flipping to Jackson State, yeah. if that makes sense. Like, This is still a really good class for Florida State. Especially considering the fact they're coming off, what is their fourth straight losing season or whatever? Yeah, they still put together a top fifteen class is extremely impressive, and that's the kind of class that it will take to get Florida State start start laying the building blocks to get Florida State back to where they want to be. And I still think Norvell can be that coach. So as frustrating as this can be for Florida State fans, I still think Norvell has that program heading in the right direction. Just look down the stretch; they started what own four this year. And then went five and what one five and two whatever it was down the stretch. They played really good football for the final two two and a half months of the season. I think Norvell has his team, has his program heading in the right direction. Florida State fans just need to be patient a little bit longer. Yeah, I will. I will add. Um, obviously, Travis Hunter is is the big story, but lost in that shuffle. Florida State did get a commitment on signing day from a top one hundred player in Azariah Thomas out of Florida. And they also convinced Julian Armella, who is a top 100, top 130 player nationally, a legacy offensive lineman, to sign on signing day with Florida State instead of waiting until February. So they still did some nice things, and they sit right now at the number 13 class in the country. So, yeah, you're 100% right that this the Hunter is the big story and obviously a, a huge loss, but they still did some nice things and, and Norvell's still doing a solid job there in terms of selling that program and, and trying to turn them around. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think Norvell, Norvell is doing a lot of good things there down in Tallahassee though. I, I just wonder if Florida state fans aren't going to force a move by the administration sooner. Not, not this off season, but save next year. They they have a good season, but 
I mean, a good season in our eyes, but in the eyes of fans, it's still a disappointed season. I mean, fan, fans, at the end of the day, do control quite a bit of coaching changes, I, in my opinion, when it comes to college football. Not all the time, but th- there's definitely, if there's upset fans, the administration takes note of it because it, upset fans often means less money. Um, now, Florida State has a big enough fan base that they'll still be bringing in quite a bit of money. But let's be honest, uh, the Doak hasn't been filled in quite some time. Uh, you, you look back how it was filled during the Jimbo Fisher days, it's quite com- quite de- depressing to look at a Florida State game now and see how many fans they're bringing in. Um, he is doing some good things, though, down there. And this was a great recruiting class, um, like Anthony said. And he'll need to continue to build on these. You need to stack classes in college football to get to an elite level. We've seen some schools bring in elite classes here and there and have a, a good season or two. But to stay at the top, you need to stack these classes. Uh, so that'll be key for Novell. Um, but I agree with everything you guys said about on paper, you look at it and it's you – can't, you can't say, oh, he lost him to Jackson State or whatever. Because, I mean – you guys summed it up perfectly on top of what I was saying earlier. Um, let's talk about NIL deals quickly here before we move on. If the NIL deal here is true, and I would say that's probably would have been a quite a convincing factor here, which I don't think anybody would have a problem with anybody saying that. I mean, if he was truly offered north of a million dollars, potentially up to $1.5 million to play at Jackson state, yeah, you take that money. I don't know the background of the Hunter family. I don't know the background of 99% of recruits. But I know that probably 99% of recruits, $1.5 million would be life-changing money. I mean, we, we won't – obviously, there's like the uh, Christian drive, drivers of the world whose fathers were NFL all-pro wide receivers and stuff who have plenty of money. But then there's there's plenty of players who are on the far, and by plenty, I mean probably a great deal of players who are on the other spectrum of that. And $1.5 million would would not just be life-changing for them, but would be life-changing for their families. And for some of them, that money can get them potentially out of bad situations uh, as well. In terms of, I mean, you look at like, Kids in Philly, uh, are you tell me kids in Philly if they got an NIL deal worth whatever, but was enough to help their family relocate out of Philly? Which I mean, I live right outside Philly. Philly's crime right now is worse than it's been in forever. Uh, you tell me a, a kid wouldn't look at money like that and say, "Hey, if I go here, I can get my family out of a bad situation." and still go play college football at a high level. I mean, I I think if this is true, it shows that NIL deals can help change the landscape of college football to a degree. Yes, the big schools, Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, Ohio State, are still going to get a majority of the elite players because they also have some of the most money to throw around. But this also shows that the little dogs in the fight can also grab a big guy here and there if they play their cards right. 
Yeah, I mean, like you said, Dylan, <clears throat> to what, 90% of the families in this country, if not more, $1.5 million is life-changing. You know, <clears throat> like my family, for example, and it's not like I'm like living in poverty or anything of the nature, but if either of my kids ever got offered a $1.5 million NIL deal, I would tell them, listen, you go to that school. Like, that's just the way it is. Um, and like you said, then I ultimately, it's not going to change a whole lot because the, the recruitments like this are not going to be the norm. They're going to be the exception. Ultimately, most of your big blue bloods, your programs recruit the best, are still going to be the programs that have the most money to throw around with NIL deals. So I don't think it's really going to change all that much. But yeah, if this is true, $1.5 million NIL deal, I can't, I can't fault any kid for taking that. Even if you're a kid that comes from a great background and comes from a family that has money, I can't fault you because that gives you the the financial capital you need to set yourself up and set your future family up for life. So I, I have no qualms with it, no nothing like that. It's just, yeah, it, it's where we're at in college football now, and to be quite honest with you, and we even saw Jimbo Fisher say this, it's where we've been in college football for quite a while. The only difference is it's legal now. Yeah, very, very well said. Um, I I completely agree with your points. Honestly, I don't have I don't have too much to add on this. So, I think uh I think we're ready to transition. All right. Well, we we, we talked about Hunter, Dion, Norvell, nil, nil, nils. Um, confusing. I've been confusing the two acronyms in my head the last. 48 hours, NIL, NLIs, too close, too close. Um, and same subject, basically. Um, let's talk about classes we like, classes we don't like. I mean, uh, here, here's the Rivals top 10. of, uh, And I don't care what you guys use. I use Rivals, of course, which I'm associated with. Alabama, Texas A&M, Georgia, Ohio State, and Texas ran out the top five. Uh, six through ten, you got Penn State, Notre Dame, Michigan, North Carolina, and Kentucky. Um, I believe on twenty four seven sports, it's uh, not that much different. With uh, I believe you guys said Oklahoma is at ten over there. Yes, Oklahoma is at ten, and then A and M and Alabama are flip flops. So A and M is one, and Alabama is two. You're, I mean, let's uh, let's talk about Texas A and M. Uh, they had themselves a hell of a recruiting class and a hell of a Wednesday on early signing day. Oh, yeah. Um, A&M's class is absolutely insane. Um, according to 24-7 Composite, they have four or five stars and then a bunch of guys that could easily be five stars in that class. Uh, the, I guess the crown jewel of the class, if you can really assign one, is uh, five-star defensive tackle Walter Nolan considered by some to be the number one player in the country, right up there with Travis Hunter, um, special talent. They also got five-star wide receiver Evan Stewart, who re- just recently signed like a couple hours ago. He kind of dragged yeah. out that process. They got a five-star quarterback in Connor Weigman. And then they're, the, the real crux of this class, though, the reason why it's so elite, is their defensive line class. They have at least four to five defensive linemen who are all in the top 70 um, in their in the 2022 class, it's truly a special defensive line haul, and it's incredibly impressive the job that Elijah Robinson and Jimbo Fisher were able to do and bringing these guys to College Station. 
Yeah, you mentioned that defensive line. They go they go along with the other five stars. Um, Gabriel Brownlow-Dendy, another five-star, who also plays on the defensive line. And, you know, if you, you have a Nye White out of Philadelphia, who for much of the cycle was a composite five-star before settling in as one of the highest-rated four-stars. Um, <clears throat> Texas A&M signed, and this is kind of crazy because it's Texas A&M. It's not Alabama. It's nothing like that. They signed 14 of the top 90 players in the country based off of the 247 composite score, which is just ridiculous. Like, you don't see very many schools do that, period, let alone Texas A&M. So, like you said, big-time kudos to Jimbo Fisher and also big-time kudos to defensive line coach Elijah Robinson because of those – 14 top 100 guys that the Aggies were able to bring in, you have five of them who are defensive linemen and elite defensive lines will win you a heck of a lot of football games. And that's what the Aggies are hanging their hat on. And it's probably going to be successful for them. The crazy part is they're not even done. Like they are still very much in the thick of it for five-star linebacker, Harold Perkins, five-star defensive lineman, Shamar Stewart, five-star cornerback Denver Harris, and high four-star safety Jacoby Matthews, all guys who will sign in February, and all four of them could very plausibly pick Texas A&M. So it's unbelievable the job that they've done. It cannot be overstated that this is an incredible recruiting class, and honestly, it might end up being the highest-rated recruiting class in in history when all is said and done. Yeah, you guys kind of uh, took all the things I was going to say about Texas A&M. So um, I have nothing to add there except um, I think there's an argument to be made that Elijah Robinson is the single best recruiter in all of college football right now, um, or, or at least in recruiting his respective positions, um, which, of course, is defensive line. Um, and, yeah, I mean, this is, this is a big class for Texas A&M. Uh, we've seen that they've been – begun to put things together on the field and they still are going to have to work on that. I mean, they're still a team that I think should be much better than they were this past season. A part of that's going to be coming down to development. And I, I, I think there's potential there for them to get to the ranks of Alabama and Georgia, but it's going to t- can take stack in these classes, something I just spoke about with Florida state as well as uh, it, it's just going to, it's going to take a lot of hard work and development out of that coaching staff, which including the quarterback position, which has been, I would say the biggest weakness of the program over the last few years. I mean, they really need Connor Wagman to come in and be the, uh, I, I think rivals has him as a high four star, the high four star, five star, if you want to call him, he needs to become that guy for Texas A&M or it's just not going to work out. They, they need to find a quarterback uh, sooner than later, whether that's in the transfer portal or through recruiting. Uh, I like it. And they're going to have to become more consistent. Consistency hasn't been the biggest thing for Jimbo Fisher since the national championship season at Florida state. I still think he's one of the best coaches in college football, but I still have my doubts overall about Texas A&M, if that, if that makes sense. Well, it could get interesting because um, A&M got a commitment from 
four-star tight end Jake Johnson, who was an LSU uh, yep. LSU commit for a long time, and the brother of quarterback Max Johnson, who is currently in the transfer portal. So yeah, it could be very interesting to see if Max Johnson goes with his brother to Texas A&M. I feel like that's got to be the- – it's, it's been rumored that they are a package deal. Yeah, so that, that could answer the quarterback problems for A&M right then and there. And Max Johnson would be a hell of a pickup for a for AM. And they would have to replace I, Isaiah Spiller in that backfield. But I think if you get Max Johnson there, we're talking about AM being potentially I don't even think even with with Matt without Max Johnson, you can make an argument that going into next season, AM is the third best team in the SEC. Oh yeah, for sure. They definitely have an argument. And I think I I think we could see them make some noise next year. Uh, potentially, I, I don't know who's on their schedule outside of Alabama, of course, but but could could they make a run at an SEC title game next year? I think if you have Max Johnson, the answer is absolutely yes. Um, yeah, totally agree. All right. Uh, also worth with A and M quickly, uh, and this kind of also related to Oregon. Uh, Oregon is set to hire Marshall Malcho 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 as the chief of staff for football. Uh, he's been the associate AD for football at Texas A&M uh, for the last few years. This according to Pete uh, Thamel. Uh, that would be that would be quite a a hit for A&M if they did lose him. So we'll see. Yeah, uh, I I know. Just real quick, I think guys in that position um, is one of the most overlooked positions in all of college football. You know, you look at you look at Ohio State, for example, and I would argue tooth and nail the most important man in Ohio State football going back to Urban Meyer is Mark Pantonio, and Mark Pantonio is essentially their director of football ops. Yep. Um, yeah, the, those positions are so incredibly overlooked and underappreciated by by fans. But if you don't have a good guy in that position, you're not going to have a good program. It's that simple. You can make an argument. Mark Pantonio is a top five to ten. Uh, is this term's not going to sound right? But impact person when it comes to recruiting in college football. Absolutely, he, he's that that he's that important. He, he's he's more important than ninety five percent of the coaches in college football. And he's pretty much the biggest reason. Ohio State has been recruiting at an elite level for the last decade. And why they've been able to do it under multiple coaches. Yep. Without, without, and not just head coaches, but assistant coaches, everything. Um, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, so, but yeah, great day for Texas AM. Great sign for Jimbo Fisher going forward. We'll see what they can do after this and continue to build upon it. Uh, what are some other classes you guys like? I mean, uh, I'll go first. Uh, a little bit of a, a cheat here, I, I would say, because Rivals does have, have them at number 10. But, I mean, I think you have to uh, give Kentucky a whole lot of credit here. I mean, Mark Stoops had a great season. I mean, he's put together, what, three really strong seasons now in four years or so? Um, and now he has... Uh, the greatest class in Kentucky history, headlined by uh, four-star size, five-star offensive lineman, Keontae Goodwin, 
and then they have defensive tackle Dion Walker out of Michigan. I mean, he beat Goodwin for Goodwin and Walker. He went in and beat both Michigan and Michigan State for both of those guys, which is huge recruiting wins uh, for Kentucky. Um, on top of that, you got guys like Caden Wade, uh, Tyrese Fearby, um, Eliza Reed, so on and so forth as guys I, I kind of like in this class potentially more than others. Just a, a terrific class here for Kentucky by Mark Stoops. And we'll see if he can continue to build uh, what he has going here at Kentucky. But this is a major class for Kentucky, a major class in the SEC. It's one of the tops in the SEC, I believe. It ranks, let's see, fourth in the SEC, a corner rivals. I mean, that is huge for Kentucky. Uh, just terrific job by Mark Stoops and uh, the whole Wildcats coaching staff. Anthony, who's your who's your uh, favorite recruit? Not favorite, but what's a recruiting class you really like? Yeah, now staying in the SEC, the number five ranked class in the SEC and number twelve overall according to twenty four seven Sports. I have Missouri. Um, I really, really like Missouri's class. This is a great job by Drinkwitz to put this assemblage of talent together. Um, the headliner is five star and number three player on the composite wide receiver Luther Burden. Keeping him home was a massive deal for the University of Missouri. Um, great to see that. Uh, they got a really solid quarterback prospect in four-star quarterback Sam Horn. And um, just on signing day, they uh, kept another uh, in-state four-star home in defensive end DJ Wesselak. So really solid job by Missouri to put this class together. Very impressed. A lot of it being in-state talent, too. It was a great year in-state for Missouri in terms of football. I I agree. I think that Missouri class is, I mean, Kentucky getting a top ten class is somewhat surprising. But for Eli Drinkowitz on what was a bad season for Missouri, I mean, because I I went into the season with bigger expectations for Missouri, but to have that type of recruit class despite having a little bit of a struggle this year is is huge for that program, and um, I, I can't wait to see what he continues to build there in Missouri because I think if if they're patient with him, the results are going to come and it's going to be some uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we're looking at Missouri in a couple of years like we've looked at Kentucky over maybe the last three or four years. Marty, what, what, what's your class? Uh, yeah, mine goes to the Stanford Cardinal. Uh, came in with the 15th best class in the country on the 247 composite. Um, led by David Bailey, an edge rusher out of California, as well as Un- <clears throat> Ernest Cooper, another high four-star defensive lineman. Um, Stanford is a program more so than any other that probably has been hurt by the early signing period uh, due to the fact that a lot of Stanford admissions take place later in the in the cycle. If you look at Stanford, since the early signing period, their, their classes have progressively regressed. Uh, their 2019 class is 19 in the country. They thought of 21st in the country and then the 43rd in the country. And <clears throat> prior to the early signing period, their classes were 14th, 16th, 24th, and 13th. So you had seen a big regression in a bad way from Stanford. To their credit, the cycle, David Shaw and company really stepped up and 
you know, sign a phenomenal class. And I think this could be, this could be the, whatever they did differently to be able to make this work as opposed to the early days of the early signing period, this could be the beginning of Stanford getting back to being that program they were for a lot of the 2010s. Yeah. I mean, it's been a rough couple of years out there and, uh, uh, why am I blanking on where Stanford is? Palo Alto. Palo Alto. Yeah. It's been a rough couple of years in Palo Alto. Um, so, uh, Perhaps this is the one that gets him back on track. Uh, I, I really do like that class as well. Um, and, and this is potentially a make or break year for him as well out there in Palo Alto. If Stanford doesn't get it back on the right track, you have to wonder if they could be looking at making a coaching change somewhere in the future because he's getting paid a ton, in, a ton of money for some what has, I mean, easily been underwhelming results recently. All right. Well, those are our classes that we like. Let's talk about classes that are a little bit underwhelming, disappointing, whatever you want to call it. Anthony, I'll let you start off. What what class have you found a little bit underwhelming so far this cycle? Yeah, uh, give me a second to pull it up. But my class is actually Wisconsin at number 44 in the country right now, only 14 commits and only two four stars. Um, I expect Wisconsin to recruit at a little higher clip than that, especially after the 2021 cycle where they actually finished in the top 20 with the number 16 class in the country. So definitely a little bit of a letdown for Wisconsin. They missed out on some uh, important uh, prospects throughout the year, including um, four-star offensive lineman Billy Shrouth, who ended up at Notre Dame. That was a huge loss for them on the offensive line. So, uh, yeah, Wisconsin, definitely a little bit of a disappointment so far. They've still got Carson Hinsman out there, who's a four-star offensive lineman that they could still reel in. He's an in-state prospect as well. So it'll be very interesting to see if they can close on him, but still very, very disappointing for Wisconsin. Yeah, I mean, the Badgers, they've never been, you know, all-star recruiters, but they've always put together these decent recruiting classes. This one just, it, it feels really underwhelming to me as well. And um, I, I just, I, they complain about not being able to get over the hump, but this is the major reason why. I mean, and it's not like that is a Madison is one of the best places in college, just college overall. I mean, one of the best college towns in America, you're playing in one of the coolest and I think best stadiums in college football. You have a ton to sell if you're, Wisconsin, the only thing that is going against you is that you play in Wisconsin where it it's cold like nine out of 12 months of the year. I'm being a little, you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that is the only thing you have going against you. I just don't understand why they can't recruit there to at least a marginally decent level, especially when you look around. And I mean, Illinois has a better recruiting class this year. Um, Purdue. uh, uh, Utah. I mean, Utah had a good season, but still, uh, uh, Utah can't be that much better to play in than Wisconsin. Um, So I I definitely agree with that. Marty, what what class has underwhelmed you? I have a feeling I know who, but what class? Yeah, my most underwhelming class – I got to go with Pitt. You're coming off your first ever ACC title and you're setting 64th nationally. 
Um, I understand it's a small class, but man, that, that's a bit of a cop out excuse. If you ask me, you know, you, you look at the, the, the current rankings and you have Clemson with 13 commits, LSU with 13 commits, both within the top 20. You have Oregon only has 12 commits coming in as a top 30 recruiting class. You have Wisconsin, who we mentioned, with 14, still a top 45 recruiting class. UCLA, only 12 commits, still top 45 recruiting class. Like to, to be coming off an ACC championship and be ranked 64th nationally in recruiting, even with a small class, that's not good. And, you know, this is a, some of this is conversation for later in the offseason. But if you're, if you're looking at it from a pit perspective, you know, you, you just lost your offense coordinator in Nebraska. Your wide receiver coach, who might be the shoe and air apparent to replace him, could very well be heading to Colorado. You're signing a just bad recruiting class. It does not make it seem that this success is sustainable for Pitt and instead it truly is a uh, one-year flash in the pan. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we tweeted about it on our Twitter account, uh, and we immediately got, well – you're not paying attention. Pitt is well, yeah, that we, many players. We were told we can't do basic math because they signed a small recruiting class, which is why I made sure to point out multiple small recruiting classes in this cycle. Yep. They're still ranked much higher than theirs. Yeah. At, at the end of the day, Pitt, if they want to continue at this level, they have to recruit at a higher level. I mean, there's no reason Pitt cannot be a regular top 25 team in college football. They're in a great state for talent. They're right next to another great state for talent. They're close to the, to Dell, you know, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, DMV. Uh, and you, you could still go into upstate New York and grab a few guys and some of the other um, great lake States and grab some solid players as they have in the past. I mean, you look at the players they've produced, Larry Fitzgerald, Aaron Donald, just named two. Those are two of the greatest players of the last 20 years in the NFL. How they don't recruit better is just, it, it, it baffles me. And the only thing I can come down and point to is that the fact that it, it must be that Pat Narduzzi just isn't that good of a, a recruiter. I was going to say, when Pat Narduzzi is your coach, that will definitely, uh, <clears throat> you know, for for stories that are for another day and potentially not on air, uh, when Pat Narduzzi is your coach, that's that that will handcuff you in recruiting. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it, it is a very poor recruiting class for Pittsburgh considering everything, uh, especially coming off the season they had with a Heisman finalist uh, and uh, – what I think is one of the top up and coming coaches in, in college football and wide receivers coach Brandon Marion as well. Uh, so we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens there. Um, my underwhelming class of the cycle so far. And of course we still have almost a little less than two months here for schools to add on to these classes. So these results can change, but right now for me, it's Nebraska uh, just 13 commitments 59th ranked class according to rivals uh, just one four-star commitment that's from uh, defensive back Jaden gold uh, who or Gould who I, I'm gonna give a little 
bit of a, I don't know if it's insider, but secret here. Uh, a lot of teams are worried about him because he's had multiple knee surgeries already uh, in, in high school. And th- that's why a lot of schools backed off him. I mean, uh, it wasn't exactly a decommitment from USC, if you get what I'm saying. Uh, so, I mean, he's a, he's still got a ton of potential. And I think he's a guy that, yeah, if he if he does pan out, Nebraska got a steal here. Because when he was healthy and at the top of his game, he was a top 150 or so player in the country. So I think there's still that potential. But he it's not like he's going to be an absolute, you know, uh, he's, he's definitely going to be a star type player either. Um, but beyond that, I mean, just a really disappointing class for Nebraska, especially when you look at Scott Frost, who – needs a huge 2022 to save his job and bringing in this class. I, I don't see many guys who can make an immediate impact next year for Nebraska. And you look at that roster, you look at what they've, the lack of what they've done in the transfer portal so far. I don't see much changes coming in Nebraska next year. I know they got whip uh, Mark whip Whipple as their offensive coordinator now. But, I mean, the coverage is still bare there in terms of talent for the Cornhuskers. And, I mean, Scott Frost should be doing much better than 59th in the country. Yeah, you know, it's it, – it's, it, I'm really surprised Scott Frost is even coming back next season. Um, and not to continue to pile on Pitt, even though I'd gladly do that all day. Um, the fact Whipple left Pitt to go to Nebraska, where Scott Frost almost assuredly going to be fired after next season, does not exactly paint a pretty picture for the Panthers. But yeah, it, it, with, with Nebraska, especially Scott Frost, there's no reason to recruit at this level. They should be recruiting better. They should be playing better, and they're not. And like I said, I won't be surprised at all if Frost has shown the door after after next season. All right, so those are our disappointing classes. Uh, we, and I, I think in terms of sign day, is there anything else you guys want to briefly mention here? No, I think that pretty much covers it. All right. Uh, Marty, any last words on early national sign day? No, I don't think so. Um, yeah, no, it's a fun day. It always is. And you know, all the, all the fun and excitement and it's kind of like Christmas, all the fun and excitement's over till next year. All right, well, let's talk about uh, some non-national sign day, early national sign day stuff. Uh, two quarterbacks have left the transfer portal. Well, multiple, uh, three actually. Uh, Miles Brennan uh, is returning to LSU. Uh, I did see a tweet earlier today that he was actually expected to commit to another school this week, but Brian Kelly called him recently. Was like, I want told him he wants him to come back. And Brennan decided to come back to LSU, so that's big for uh, the Tigers. And I think Brennan should be available for the bowl game, which is also huge because they were down to just um, one one scholarship quarterback, that being Garrett Nussmeyer. And if Nussmeyer played in the bowl game, he would have burned his redshirt. Which I mean, you don't want you don't want to burn the redshirt of a true freshman if you don't have to, especially for a bowl game that doesn't matter. Um, on top of that. UCF transfer quarterback Dylan Gabriel is headed to UCLA. 
I think that's a great fit for the Chip Kelly offense. Uh, I'm excited to see what he can do. He's been phenomenal for UCF. Uh, in what needs to be another big year for Chip Kelly at, well, sorry, needs to be a big year for Chip Kelly in uh, Los Angeles there when we were just talking about, you know, Scott Frost needs a big season. Uh, so does Chip Kelly. Again, a guy like Dylan Gabriel is going to, that, that's big for the Bruins. And then the other one was Adrian Martinez is uh, headed to Kansas State, uh, which was uh, expected since he pretty much entered the portal. And I, I do realize we have – I no, you, you're, me and Marty did talk about Spencer Rattler, correct, Marty, last episode? Yeah, we did. We did. All right. So, I mean, either way. Uh, Anthony, did you have any thoughts on Spencer Rattler? I mean, huge, huge, huge pickup for South Carolina. I mean, it'll be. I, we all kind of overlook the connection to Shane Beamer there from his time at Oklahoma. Yeah. And he brought Austin yeah, Stogner with him, the tight end, who's also a really good yeah. player. So that's a great pickup for South Carolina. Um, I know Spencer Rattler got a lot of flack last year because Caleb Williams outshined him, but he's still a good quarterback. And I think he immediately improves that South Carolina offense. And it makes them a lot more exciting to watch going into next season. Absolutely. Either of you have any thoughts on um, Dylan Gabriel to UCLA or uh, um, Adrian Martinez to Kansas State? Which, by the way, I think Martinez may actually play better at Kansas State than he has in Nebraska. I agree. And personally, I love the fit of Dylan Gabriel at UCLA. I think he's a good fit for that high-tempo offense that uh, Chip Kelly loves to run. And, um, yeah, it's a big splash get for Chip Kelly. And like you said, he needs a big season next year because he'll definitely be on the hot seat if if UCLA does not perform. So, yeah, I think a guy like Dylan Gabriel should definitely help his cause. Yeah, I also love the fit with Gabriel in UCLA. I think he's a great quarterback for Chip's offense. Um, and Adrian Martinez in Kansas State, I agree we could see him perform better there than he did in Nebraska. Um, not that that's, you know, really setting the bar all that high or anything, but yeah, I think we could see him perform well in Manhattan as opposed to what we saw in Lincoln. And finally, there the one guy we actually didn't talk about, Marty, on Tuesday um, that I wanted to briefly mention was Bo Nix entered the transfer portal this week. Um, that was a little bit of unex- unexpected out of, uh, at least for me, uh, to see him leave Auburn. I mean, uh, obviously he's he, coming into – uh, the Plains, he was royalty for the Tigers because of his father. Um, of course, that, that did not uh, pan out. But what did you guys think about Bo Nix entering the transfer portal? And where do you think he ends up? Because, I mean, I'm looking at I just I, – I, apparently he does have his destination because apparently he uh, – there's a form on the when you enter the transfer portal – where you could check not to be contacted by other schools. And he checked that. So I, I think he knows where he's going already, but where, where do you guys think he's going? All I want to say is that this is the year Bo Nix has improved so much under this new offense. He's focused. He's having fun. I wouldn't be surprised if he's a dark horse for the Heisman. <laughs> but I love All right. from Marty there. But uh, no, I expect it to be UCF. I think the connection to Gus Malzahn just makes a lot of sense. And I, I think he'd do well in that offense because he, he has in the past. So I think UCF is probably the pick. 
Yeah, I'm with Anthony. I think Heisman Dark Horse Bo Nix goes to UCF. <laughs> um, like, I, I too was surprised because it's like, man, Bo Nix sucks. Like, if he doesn't land at UCF, who the hell is going to take him? So, yeah, you know, as a Penn State fan, I'm kind of upset because I would rather deal with Bo Nix next year than TJ Finley because Finley can at least chuck the ball down the field. But yeah, I, I too think Bo Nix wind, winds up in Orlando because. Especially, like you said, Dylan, with him having checked the box about not being contacted by the programs, it just makes all the sense in the world for him to already have something in place through back-channeling and whatnot with, with Gus Malzahn to reunite with with UCF. I I 100% agree that I think UCF is the logical destination. But if I learned one thing in college football or the last, you know, especially the last two years of doing this podcast, but... If we know one thing from college, well, logic does not always mean that's what's going to happen. Um, college football is the most unlogical thing there is, I think, on earth. Uh, it never goes to what you. It never goes the way you think it's going to go, especially recruiting. I mean, recruiting is a wild ride, guys. And we didn't even talk about uh, Jay Sean Barham and his plan of committing to South Carolina just to flip on Sunday to Maryland. I mean. This shit's ridiculous. At the end of the day, listen, listen. Uh, I mean, for that, some that's reason, a, that's a really bad. Plus, grown man care enough every week to record this podcast and talk about eighteen to twenty-two year olds playing football. If big, if that's true, we like it, obviously what Beamer said is very damning because I don't think he would lie about that. And if he got a phone call from somebody in Maryland saying, "Hey, by the way, this kid's about to flip on Wednesday." That that's that's pretty damning for Loxley and Barra, more so on Loxley in my opinion. But if that's true, that's kind of funny and kind of pathetic on Maryland's part. That the only buzz you can create for your program is to have a local kid flip on signing day. And I would assume Andre Roy flipping from Penn State to Maryland was a similar situation if Barham was doing it. So very very interesting. We'll probably never know if it's actually true, but if it is, that's kind of pathetic in my opinion. Yeah, no, I'm with you. It's definitely the worst lock on worst look on Loxley and on the adults involved because you can't fault teenage boys for being stupid and having stupid ideas. I was a teenage boy once. I was stupid. I had a lot of stupid ideas. But, you know, parents, coaches, mentors, whoever it is, need to step in and say, no, this is dumb. You're going to make yourself look bad. You're going to make a bad reputation for yourself. And that's what happened, you know, with what Beamer said and – by all accounts, Anthony, like you said, Andre Roy, when he committed to Penn State, he was expected to commit to Maryland, um, committed to Penn State without telling the staff, visited Maryland two days later, and then Wednesday morning of signing day, called Penn State staff and told them he was going to go to USC. So it definitely seems like this was some sort of cooked up plan with him and Barham and Mike Loxley, and that's just a terrible all-around look for everybody involved. Yeah, it's it's been quite quite the uh, story to follow. We may never know the true story. The funny but... part is, it was just like a side note. It wasn't even like like a like a big headline because like it was no. talked about for like ten minutes and then nobody gave a shit because Travis Hunter went to Jackson yeah. State. And it's not even just the Hunter stuff. It's like Andre Roy is a complete project of an offensive tackle, and Jay Sean Barham was still a four star prospect has dropped like 100 spots in recruiting rankings since the, since the season started back in September. 
So it's not like either of these guys were some like just incredible world beater talent by Maryland either. Yeah, I mean it, it's it'll be interesting if we ever find out the full story. I, I would love one day for somebody just to write a tell-all book uh, about college football recruiting, even if it, everything's anonymous, just like all these random college football recruiting stories. It would be it would be great. It just kind of makes you wonder too if like Raheem Jarrett from a few years ago or. Loxley always pulls this at least once a year with at least one prospect. So you got to wonder yeah. if it's like almost like cooked up like every year. He's just like flipping these Maryland kids from like random other schools. And like well, I mean, when your record as a head coach is 14 and 49, you got to do something to try and stay relevant. Because what the hell are you doing on the field sort of shit ain't keeping you relevant. So. You got to try and do something. Yeah, that's true. All right, but with that, I guess we'll wrap this episode up. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the College Ball 365 podcast. I'm Dylan Count Crowley. I was joined by Anthony Nizan and Marty Lieb in today's episode. Thank you for both for coming on tonight and talking some college football and early national signing day. Um, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that fun stuff. And, uh, yeah, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, review the podcast, share the podcast, and we'll be back at it next week uh, to give more bowl game predictions and talk about whatever big news happens in the next uh, couple of days. So until then, thanks, everybody, and we'll talk real soon.